1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Music podcast. In this episode, I speak with Franz Nikolai, the author of Humorless Ladies of Border Control, Touring the por- Punk Underground from Belgrade to Ulaanbaatar. In the podcast, we talk about Nikolai's experiences touring throughout Eastern Europe, the Balkans, Russia, Ukraine, and Mongolia. We explore the role of punk music in these countries, who is attracted to punk music there, and what it's really like to tour. Hello. Hi there. So um, let's start by exploring how this book came out. How did you decide to write about your touring experiences?
0: Well, there's is one of the things about being a touring musician for a certain amount of years is that, you know, after you get through the first couple of years of, of excitement of filling the downtime with drinking and other kinds of debauchery, you find yourself with a lot of time on your hands and, you know, people fill that time in various ways. I found it to be really useful time as someone who's interested in books and interested in writing, useful for, um, for raw material, because uh, you're always in a new place. You're among interesting people. If you're a good observer, um, and a sort of diligent observer it becomes really good note-taking practice. And so I was writing longer and longer pieces to the point where it seemed like the next logical thing would be to, to tackle a book length like manuscript, um, at about the same time, uh, circumstances came together so that I was going to be doing a pretty lengthy tour, the centerpiece of which was a month um, in Russia and a couple weeks in Ukraine before that. And I thought that that might be, um, if not the book itself, a good opportunity to 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 make the, the heart of a book. Um, and so I, I embarked on that tour uh, with that in mind um, and so that, that was, that was sort of the beginning of it. And then I went back to Eastern Europe, uh, uh, several times over the next few years and augmented the project from there. Part of the interesting things about the thing about the way it developed was that, of course, in 2011, 2012, when I first went over there, there was still this sense that Russia, um, was a, kind of a political backwater. Um, and, um, And so I was treating the book more as, you know, not just a tour diary, but, you know, because I wanted to make it tour diary plus. But if I was going to be interacting with 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 anything outside of my own experiences, it was going to be the literary backdrop. Um, You know, you can't write about traveling in the Balkans without acknowledging that, you know, Without acknowledging Rebecca West, you can't write about the Trans-Siberian Railroad without acknowledging Chekhov and Thoreau, and how you know, however many others have have written about that. Um, you know, Eva Hoffman for Eastern Europe in general, and just sort of to to be in dialogue with other people who had written a, about that sort of thing. Um, by the end of the project, uh, when I was going back to Ukraine in twenty thirteen twenty summer of twenty fourteen. That It had all suddenly become unexpectedly uh, current uh, politically, and so that added a, a different narrative structure to the thing, and especially a comparison to the way the kids I was talking to in Russia interacted with their political situation um, and the way the Ukrainian punks were, were interacting with theirs made a, a sort of salutary comparison.
1: yeah, that's one of the cool things about reading the book is that um, all of these like kind of major political events are sort of unfolding as you are just kind of going from town to town. And so um, I thought that was really interesting. So can you maybe talk about one or two of those kind of like big political moments, whether it's in Ukraine or Russia, that that happened while you were there?
0: Well, the biggest one in summer of 2014, I was touring in rural western Ukraine uh, by the Polish border. Um, At this point, the the Maidan revolution had happened over the winter. The president had been driven into exile. Russia had responded by annexing Crimea and initiating the military provocations in the east. Um, I happened to be out on... um, at the time when the Malaysia Airlines flight got shot down, um, and so that was probably the biggest, um, you know, global newsmaking event that happened while I was <laughs> on the ground, and it was interesting to see um, how how the people in Western Ukraine reacted to that, which was, uh, for the most part, to to, to dis- dismiss it. But the you know we got to talk a, a lot about. Um, particularly the war in the East, which was really on everybody's mind, uh, from festival organizers to people who knew people who had, you know, sort of packed into a car and driven across the country to to the front to join the army.
1: Yeah, so um, as you were doing that, you said that they kind of were dismissive. Um, I guess one of the things that I've always thought about punk music, or dismissive of the events, but I always think of punk music as being very politically involved and is that something that you were seeing or hearing in as you
0: were kind of meeting and talking with people it's a it's such a complicated question because sort of broadly there's two schools of thought in punk rock um the first is um is that it's that it's totally apolitical and just interested in provocation that's sort of i, I guess you, would, you I associate that with like the late 70s british punk of you know wearing swastikas and um, you know Nazi uniforms and and you know uh, uh, the sort of provocation for pol- provocations' sake, um, and then there's the sort of more politically righteous wing uh, that I guess takes off from the clash, um, which is much more dominant now, especially in its sort of anarcho punk in- inspired by the 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 80s anarcho punk British bands like Crass or um, American bands like Fugazi, um, which is much more um, activist, leftist, anti-globalist, anti-corporate, you know, much more attentive to language, Um, and so that's a that's a dispute that. Or even, or a misunderstanding. In some cases, I mean, that's that's the root of the the conversation I had with with some of the Russian bands who were still more in touch with the older style of of punk as provocation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I still see even when you think as punk as provocation, it still seems political to me, maybe in a broader sense, and um, kind of reacting to and responding to. Um, Kind of some things that are out there in culture and in
0: cultural politics. So I guess that's right. Was- sure, I mean prov- provocation is is, pol- is politics too. G-, G. G Allen has a politics. and The politics is nihilism, you know. And there are bands that still that still do that. The Dwarves come to mind, uh, or you know guar Although what guar does is sort of different. But how it manifests on the ground is that the politically active punks, you know, have already created for themselves an alternative civil society, um, a community that operates by a different and more progressive set of rules than the, than the larger polis that they live in. Um, and that because these are, you know, young internet, um, enabled educated, um, kids who see themselves as part of a global community, um, in which some of the people that are part of the members of that community that they feel that they belong to have more rights and opportunities than they do. And, you know, of course, thwarted expectations are a dangerous thing in a repressive or developing, um, society. And so I think they find that useful in the same way that, um, you know, people who belong to a church organization or people who belong to, you know, Penn or um, any other kind of international progressive um, community use that to find inspiration.
1: So one of the things I've noticed in just attending kind of punk shows kind of where I live is that it seems like there's this sort of increasing divide between the politics that are on stage and that the artists are sometimes articulating versus the sort of the the political viewpoints of those people on the floor and in the mosh pit. Do you see that also happening? Um, maybe in Eastern Europe when you were touring?
0: Can you be more specific?
1: Um, you know, I just I really remember being at a show, sort of uh, right up to the lead up of the two thousand and sixteen election here, and the band was you know very trying to get people excited for Hillary Clinton and trying to sort of kind of, you know, just really criticize Trump and a lot of the people just in on the floor were just kind of, kind of yelling and booing throughout it. And it really was kind of strange to me that, that, that the artists really didn't seem like they were able to persuade um, the audience or even share like a political viewpoint with the audience.
0: Mhm. Um I think that it probably depends where you are. Um <laughs> it, my my experience at least in, you know, American punk rock is that it's it's you know, I would have been surprised to hear a band um going all out for for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> they weren't going um, all out, but they were talking. It, as so opposed they just- to, if you live in a politically conservative area, uh which I I guess I'm assuming, then you're yeah. more likely to to get an an, an audience that's the criticism I usually hear about American punk rock and to a certain extent um European punk rock is that it's so dogmatically uh leftist that it's a real preaching of the converted situation like that, that that you know that's a that's more of a problem in a in a in a privileged privileged and relatively liberal society um i mean I think you get it you sometimes you'll get a situation where you know bands are either Saying something they believe in, or or um, just sort of catering to what they think the crowd is likely to want to hear from them. Um, you know, punk rock in in the United States is a much less committed thing in a way. It tends to be something people to dip dip into for a couple of years and then and then go on with their lives. Uh, one of the inspiring things about some of the people in the former um, communist world that I'm writing about particularly in Ukraine, but also in Croatia, and Serbia, and uh, to a certain extent, Romania, um, is that they've taken on the really idealistic aspects of American punk rock um, with, in a way that means something to their to their lives in the long term and, and to their lives outside of the shows. Yeah.
1: Can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on who are the people who listen to punk rock in Eastern Europe, the Balkans, um, like who, who's the audience, who are the promoters, who are the, the club owners?
0: Yeah. Well, much like here, it's a, it's a primarily a middle-class phenomenon, right? You have, um, to, to, to be aware of the larger global experience of it, you have to have an internet connection. For, for example, um, you have to speak pretty good English. Um, so, you know, it tends to, people who are employed, it's not, it's not a real working class or underclass thing that, that tends to, you know, those people are into like brutal metal or, or, or hip hop. So it's a, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm sort of repeating myself by saying it's a, it's, it's educated young people with a progressive viewpoint, much like it is here.
1: Yeah. Um, and so what, how big is the average venue that you played, and and how nice or fancy was was it? Like,
0: how does it compare to venues here? I would say not big and not fancy. <laughs> um, you know, these are DIY networks, so these are these are people who are not into music that's that's popular where they are. So they're putting it together themselves. They're putting it on in garages or in squats or in you know they're they're renting out a. a or not even renting out there. They've, they've made a deal with the local bar. They can put a show once in a while. Um, you know, you're talking 50 or a hundred people in any given city. Um, also I'm not, a, I'm not a huge act. <laughs> so there, there's that also, but, um, there, you know, there's an aspect of coming to some of these places, you know, out in Siberia. I did some, to- I did some touring in China that didn't end up going in the book. But you're talking about going to play, to cities of a couple million people you know but they're they're pretty far away so there's, there's an aspect of just showing up you're bound to 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 attract some people out of the novelty or you know I was in a couple bands that that people had heard of, so they would come check it out you know just people don't go to Novosibirsk score or Oscar or or wherever and so um you can you can get people out of the woodwork.
1: And so what, what was there when you showed up for your shows and what were they sort of expecting from you, um, given your work with hold steady and some of the other bands you
0: worked with and and stuff, what, what, what were, what were their expectations? Well, they knew what I did solo also. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things about Russia is they have this this social network called contact, which is, if you can imagine Facebook crossed with BitTorrent, um, it, it's a you know it's social social media plus plus media pirating. We're all familiar with with all my records <laughs> just from being like oh here who, this show's coming up let me check out what he does if they hadn't checked it out already. So one of the knock-on effects of that being that um, they weren't interested in buying any CDs or anything. They were interested in in vinyl and T-shirts, which were the objects that you couldn't pirate over the internet. So that's my that's my advice for anyone touring over there' it's, don't bother bringing CDs because they have that stuff. (laughs) They've they've listened to the stuff online, bring, bring t-shirts and vinyl. Um, I mean, they were familiar with it. it, I, I've played with a couple high profile bands that are, but they're not necessarily high profile in the same communities. So these folks by and large were not interested in the hold steady or had ever heard of the hold steady, but they were, they knew, against me really well, uh, that I had played with, uh, for about a year. They knew, um, the band leftover crack that I had been sort of associated with and some bands associated with that. Some of them knew world inferno friendship society, the more punk associated bands.
1: You, you mentioned, um, you know, trying to sell t-shirts and records Uh, but in your book you actually go into a little bit more detail about sort of the challenges of that bringing those things on this tour um offered so um how easy or difficult was it for you to have t-shirts and
0: vinyl for the the audiences well really difficult i mean to a certain extent it's it's it depends on how i'm getting around so in Eastern Europe proper, I was in a rental car, so that made it a little easier. I could pack the car full of stuff. Um, in Russia and Ukraine, I was on trains, um, either by myself or with my wife. And so it was a matter of how much could we squeeze into a backpack while also carrying three instruments and whatever clothes we needed. And so they challenging. And then I was really running low on CDs by the time I got into Russia my my label is in London, and I thought maybe I could get them to send send some to Saint Petersburg because I was going to be there for a week. But ba- what what people on both sides told me is like, listen, you send something into Russia, it, it's either going to get through customs in in two days or it may be three months. Like, don't even bother. So there was a process of um, of basically bootlegging my own CDs. <laughs> we wandered around Saint Petersburg and bought some. Some paper and some blank CDs, and just burned a bunch of CDs. And I made I made little drawings for special. And then we only had double XL t-shirts left, and there aren't nearly as many double XL people in in Eastern Europe as there are in the United States. So we spent a night with some uh, with some scissors and and thread, cutting them up and turning them into smalls and mediums.
1: And what about? There's a little
0: bit, of, yeah. There's a little bit of improvis. Yeah.
1: And what about, I I, I think I remember there was a moment where you were crossing some international borders and you were sort of having to, I don't know, maybe persuade uh, the the border guards that, that this was, this really, you weren't really there for, for like selling things or touring. You were just,
0: this was just kind of your stuff. Well, that's the normal thing that you have to do to avoid paying customs. On the, on the merchandise, right? Yeah. So if you're bringing CDs and T-shirts in, this is a particular problem at the Swiss border, actually. Of all the border crossings, the absolute hardest ones are Swiss, Switzerland and Canada, weirdly enough. People don't think of that. I mean, you can you can just go to Sur, that's not, really not that hard, but getting into Switzerland or Canada with merch, you're, you're looking at a couple hundred dollars out of your pocket. <laughs> that's another piece of advice, going to Switzerland the sideway. Don't go over the main crossings. Um, yeah, I'm just, you know, there are ways in, there are ways in which I was suspicious and there are ways in which I flew under the radar. You know, I know a couple other people, bands who have done, who have toured around Russia and they're much more of a target, both for the police and for the right wing gangs to come and try and disrupt their shows because it's obvious who they are and what they're doing. You know, me and my wife on a train with, with a backpack and, and instruments We can plausibly just be backpacking tourists. Um, On the other hand, me driving around in a rental car by the the vagaries of scheduling, having to cross, you know, the Hungarian border, the Serbian border, the Croatian border, you know, every day, Slovenian border, forth, back and forth. They end up looking at your passport and being like, what the hell is this guy? You know, who is this guy? What's he doing? You know, especially if you're crossing in and out of the EU every day. Um, and so basically, basically they thought I was smuggling cigarettes. That was, that was the scam was, you know, buying cheap cigarettes in Serbia and smuggling them into, into the EU.
1: Well, one of the, the things that I had never sort of thought about when you're talking about driving from place to place is like there were times, I, 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 it may have been actually when you were actually in France, but that you like were caught in a snowstorm and it took you like seven hours to just go a few miles. Is, is that right?
0: Yeah, that was really that was a bad stretch because I was driving east from France to Serbia, and there was this giant snowstorm. I got caught on the highway over France. Fortunately, I was also driving along with the snowstorm, so I was sort of chasing that snowstorm for the whole week, uh, which was really not a lot of fun. Um, got caught in it on a on a mountain in Serbia, also really the, the same storm. Yeah, there's all kinds of things that can that that are logistical problems that don't have to do with the hour that you spend on stage you know ferry fares and car breakdowns and you know getting robbed and paying customs fees and you know all the things that that are sort of invisible behind the scenes it's a it's a real logistical challenge because it's a little bit of an international pariah still so one of the reasons that I'm able to drive around by myself and do this without someone with a giant atlas sitting in the passenger seat is, you know, having a GPS system, um, which has really detailed maps for almost everywhere I want to go, except Serbia, which is a giant blank spot in the uh, in the GPS, ex- other than the two international highways that sort of make an X, uh, make a cross through the middle of the thing. Uh, it's otherwise totally blank. So anytime I was trying to get somewhere, I it up, on, on my iPhone in the morning on the wifi and then take a bunch of screenshots and then just sort of try to follow that route during the day, old fashioned in a way. <laughs> so,
1: uh, as I was reading your book, I was sort of thinking about sort of the two most visual images I had of touring, which are like, this is spinal tap and the Cameron Crowe movie, like almost famous. And I was thinking, you know it seems like your book should almost be required reading for any anyone who thinks that like touring is going to be this glamorous thing and so were you, were you was part of you writing for like maybe those people who were thinking about getting into music
0: and what it's what it's really like on the road well both of those movies and yeah of course stuff like that of course has shaped people's perception of what it's like to be a touring musician those all happened 40 years ago right and there's been a there's been a major change in the music industry which is that there's not giant pools of money slashing around anymore uh, as of about 2000 you know around the turn of the 21st century however you, wherever you want to date it exactly but the honest truth is, you know, touring has o- is has always been a little bit of a grind. Um aside from, you know, the 0.01% who travel that way. So, and, you know, and especially now when it's there's and in, there was a, there was an idea after the collapse of the, the music industry, okay, now everyone's going to have to make their money touring. What happened, of course, is then you got a glut of touring bands and there wasn't there just wasn't enough money to go around in terms of you know even people who like music aren't going aren't going out every night um so so it's it, it's become you know increasingly difficult there is a sweet spot which is what I was hitting when I was driving by myself, which is that if you if you are in a position to tour by yourself, you can do it super economically um you know if I'm in a rental car. Rental car costs what, you know, 15 euros a day plus some gas. So if I can make 100 or 200 bucks a night, that's a pretty strong margin. You know, that entails being on the road 200 250 days a year. But you but you can make a living that way. That's something I learned from and you can you can use it to subsidize if you're interested in travel going to going to places that you wouldn't otherwise be able to afford to. So if you're on a bus with a band and a couple crew guys, your overhead is so much that you can only go on the established tour. You know, you can it in Manchester and Glasgow and Edinburgh in the UK, you can play Berlin and Hamburg and wherever else in Germany, but you're not going to go for the most part to, to anywhere that's off the beaten track. But if I'm touring by myself, I could set up a tour where I, I would say, okay, I'm going to go for a month I'm going to do two weeks in Germany where I know I'm going to make money and then I can use that to subsidize going to Bulgaria where it's going to be, or I'm just going to, you know, break even on merch and make a couple bucks.
1: I think one of the things that, or that you write about that was really kind of stunning to me was I think you were in Russia and how um, some of the punks were using um, sort of using sort of derogatory English words, especially, uh, sort of the N word, but using it in a very different way. And so, can you maybe talk a little bit about that and how, how those bands and those audiences were using
0: the N word there? Sure. I think of punk as provocation and the people who think of, of punk in the terms of, you know, what they would think of as righteous politics. Um, and this happened to be a, a, a band that was thinking of it in terms of provocation. And looking back to, to, to people like Patti Smith, who used the word in a song title, um, or, you know, some of the, um, you know, the, the, the British punks who accessorized with swastikas, they were saying why they could do that. Why couldn't we? They were They were saying, you know, we as Russians think of ourselves as, you know, pariahs on the international stage. We're outcasts. Um, why can't we, you, you know, uh, appropriate this word and use the, use it to apply to us? So for me in the book, that was an occasion to really thought what cultural symbolism means in translation. Um, you know, and, and to talk give a little historical background about what punk rock meant in the Soviet era um, it came through Soviet channels primarily in its British incarnation when a lot of those you know suzy Susie, Susie Sue Lou Reed Marky e. Smith, Johnny Rotten were playing with fascist imagery for its shock value essentially essentially only for its shock value but that had a different valence in the Soviet Union where Nazi Germany was the great historical enemy, you know, in the, in the, the the story of the glorious triumph of, of the second world war. Um, and so anyone, and so there was this sort of association between fascist posturing and being anti-government, Right. Since the since the the identity of the Soviet Union was so tied up in having defeated the Nazis, um, if you were against one of the ways to get the, the attention and irritate the government was to was to play it, pretending you were a fascist and vice versa. The most damaging insult that that the government could um, could apply to someone or to an organization was to call them fascist. You still see this today. Um, but the association of, of being punk, of being anti-government, um, became really tied up in, 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 w- in, with fascist imagery in ways that are really difficult to entangle.
1: So kind of following on that kind of to today, um, uh, I believe you were touring right after, um, sort of the pussy riot, um, events that were happening in Russia. And I was really intrigued and reading how the people who you were encountering, what their responses were to the band and what happened.
0: Yeah, I get this question almost every every time I talk to somebody about the book, um, because for people, you know, for Westerners, who've been paying attention the past decade, if you hear Russia and punk, that automatically means Pussy Riot. Um, And the and I did ask every everyone I talked to because that was the big story in the West at the moment um, in 2012. And they were all just, you know, mystified, combination of sort of mystified and dismissive, because from their point of view, Pussy Riot wasn't a band, which was true. They weren't. They were an art collective that had done a sort of punk themed protest. But it, it wasn't like they were a working band that was operating on these touring circuits and working with the collectives that, you know, they, they didn't just, they just didn't recognize Pussy Riot as doing the same thing that they did.
1: What did they, what was their view about sort of the free speech issues um, that sort of really, I think captured sort of American audiences.
0: Right. So this is the counter argument is that Pussy Riot were, whether they were, whether you, you know, whether you just want to call them a band or not. And that's sort of a taxonomic question, not a, more than anything else, but, um, they were, you know, putting themselves on the line, their, their, you know, their bodies on the line in a way that these Russian punks who weren't, um, I, you know, my dominant impression of the, the the people on the Russian punk scene that I interacted with was political apathy and cynicism. Um, they, they weren't going to protest. They didn't see the point. um, Nothing was ever going to change. They were just going to basically keep their heads down. Um, they had their local problems with in a couple places with skinhead gangs that were trying to break up their shows. You know, their 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 concern was was very their, their use of punk rock was escapist. It was like we're going to create this little, as Hakeem Bey would say, temporary autonomous zone where we can pretend that the that the outside world doesn't exist that putin doesn't exist that all of this will just go away for a short period of time and we can be among our own crowd which in its way is a totally logical response to politics in russia but you know is not terrifically productive and so in that sense you have to you have to give pussy riot credit more credit than than these guys were willing to give them
1: and so I mean, you went to so many places, and uh, one of the ways that I enjoyed reading the book was actually I had my Google Maps constantly open, and I was trying to follow your path and trying to get pictures of these places. Um, and so, that's why I put the map in the <laughs> front of the book. Well, but I also, you know, was trying to get pictures. And so I was always trying to get the places. I um, yeah. um, and, but one place that you described a little bit, but I, I really wanted m- even more was, I think it was when you were in Mongolia and just your description of the people and how once you crossed that border, I mean, it, it was just totally different. So I don't know. I guess I don't know if I have a real question, but just tell me more about what it was like in those cities and, and how people dressed and, 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 and just their interests.
0: Yeah. It's funny about border crossings. And I know this is not exactly your question and I'll get back to that, but you know, there's a lot of language around how, how borders are a construct and, you know, borders are, have a political meaning, but not a sociological meaning or, or, you know, a philosophical meaning. but there really is something about crossing a border. Um, it tells you there is something about it that tells you a lot about the country, about whether what what kind of value they place on people's first impressions <laughs> and whether, you know, the difference between arriving by car versus arriving by train versus arriving in an airport. Um, the crossing into Mongolia from Russia made a real big impression on me because of the bleakness of. um of the Russia that i had been experiencing for the previous couple of weeks, uh, um, which was economically depressed. It was physically ugly uh, in these Siberian post-industrial cities. Um, the, you know, it was psychologically depressing uh, in many ways. And then, you know, we crossed into Mongolia. I think that was where the, the, the wheels get changed for the different track gauge. Maybe that was, maybe that was crossing into China. Maybe it wasn't there. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just a, you know, there's a, obviously there's, there's physically, there's a different look about the people for, from a, from an ethnic point of view, but also just um, there was color. <laughs> yeah. In the clothing and in the houses in, in a way that I hadn't really seen in a while. Now, I had a, you know, that being said, um, the crossing into China from the Mongolian southern border crossing town was equally dramatic um, from what was really a dusty outpost into what felt like the 23rd century <laughs>
1: Yeah, that was, that was one of those moments where I just felt like, oh, I had all these like completely wrong misconceptions of these places that you were visiting. And so that was just kind of fun for me to just kind of get the rug pulled out from underneath me. Um, so that was good. So, um, what, what was like, what was, what was a place that really, um, left an imprint on you and, and was like one of your favorite places that you, you visited on the tour, on the various tours?
0: It's a tricky question because it depends on so many different factors. You know, there are some places where this, the city themselves weren't as interesting, but the people were so fascinating. You know, I'm thinking of, um, uh, some of the characters in Krasnoyarsk or in Tomsk, which has a, actually was a very lovely city and had a, had a sort of fascinating local architecture. Um, but, but I, the, the people were so interesting to talk to, or the, the fellow that I that I returned to a couple times in um, in Rijeka in Croatia, who was just a real fount of of interesting information and opinions and 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 perspectives. Um, you know, the of some of the shows were better than others. I like I had an amazing show in in Belgrade, although the city itself. Um, didn't make as much of an impression for, for a variety of reasons. Um, Bulgaria, I think, I guess if I had to pick one, just, uh, uh traveling around Bulgaria was, was a real eye opener, which had something to do with the pe- again, with the people that I was traveling with, but also the incredible, um, natural beauty of the country, which really reminded me of Montana in a way I didn't expect.
1: One thing that, um, I really got out of the book. And it maybe it wasn't completely accurate, but um, it seemed like this these tours um, really coincided with a lot of life changes that you were experiencing personally, getting married, having a child. And it really felt like um, you were kind of through the writing, kind of, I don't know, taking stock and making sense of some things and trying to figure out about touring. So What did you maybe learn about yourself personally um, on this tour?
0: It's a bit, I mean, it's such a complicated question. And part of it has just has to do with the framing of a book, right? Life life is taking place, whether you're writing a book about it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I got married outside of before the, before the scope of the book. Um, You know, my, my daughter did make an appearance toward the end of it. I mean, there's an aspect of this period of touring, which was, the most hectic, the most ambitious, the most action-packed of of my fifteen years of of, of touring, you know, it felt it felt like a a kind of a, a culmination in terms of it. It can't get any harder or more or more interesting than this. So maybe I should take a breather and take stock of where I've gotten to. Um, in part because, oh, you know, from when I first started touring around two thousand, I, I I kept touring with less and less people. I started touring with a band of of nine and then with bands of five and then by myself, um, which in a way was more liberating in terms of the places I could go. Um, But of course, then you just end up having to deal with more and more stuff all by yourself. And there's a, there's an aspect of that that can't help but make you, look around and say what you know, is this is is this in what ways is this working, in what ways is this not working? Um, um if only because you're spending, you know, especially driving around the United States, you know, six, seven, eight hours in the car every day by yourself with plenty of time to take stock of your life. <laughs> um I mean the the there was the culminating incident which is which is the birth of my daughter, which meant that, like I said, you, you know, it took me, I had to be out on the road six, seven weeks at a time, 200, 250 days a year to to make this work. Uh, and that just wasn't going to be logistically feasible. Um, and so there was a, there's sort of a, there's an aspect of crossfading because I was trying to figure out what was I going to, re- creatively and professionally, what was I going to replace this, th- this touring life with. And what I came out with came up with, you know, par- partly because I was able to get the book, book published and it, and it did pretty well, is that um, I have replaced a lot of that with, with writing. Um, and I think you can sort of see, see that at the end of the book where that's heading.
1: Well, that's a perfect segue. So what have you been working on recently and where can people find your work coming out in the near future?
0: Sure. Well, the easiest way is to go to com. That has all this stuff. Um, uh, I've got two book projects in the works right now. I'm halfway through a novel, and then I've got another nonfiction project. Um, and and there's uh, various freelance writing along the way. Uh, I've got some book reviews for Slate that just ran, one in the Times book review that'll run in August. uh um, that's that's the writing stuff um musically um I've i've also been refocusing on on composition you know stuff i can do from home so i have a choral song cycle based on the work of the squatter artist fly from the lower east side uh called peep songs that premiered in june um i just finished editing the recording of it so that'll be released pretty soon. Um, and then I've been collaborating with a choreographer named Allison Chase, formerly of the group of the dance group Palabolas, um, on an evening length dance theater production, uh, that's called No Plan B that's going to be premiering, um, in, in Portland, Maine at the end and at the, at UMaine Orono at the end of the summer. And that's, a uh, Immersive multimedia thing with uh, wall-to-wall music that's going to be mixed in surround sound. It's in a tent. All the dancers are—I'm care- uh, are, I, I, I bel- I'm led to believe—are going to have images project. There's a visual artist who's also collaborating with us, projecting images on the dancers all over the tent. It's going to be uh, quite a cool event, I think. And then that—that that music will be available. I'm going to release that after in, in the fall as well.
1: Uh, that that sounds excellent and um, i can say that sometimes when i read books by musicians i always sort of question um sort of you know should they be writing books but um that's not the case with your writing your writing is really awesome and fantastic and deep and interesting so i am excited to to read more of your work so uh,
0: thanks thank i appreciate
1: that uh thank you so much You've been listening to the New Books and Music podcast. Today, I've been talking with Franz Nicolai, the author of Humorous Ladies of Border Control, touring the punk underground from Belgrade to Ulaanbaatar. This is your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening.